Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, explore human creativity and invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, a vital ingredient in the solutions to all of our problems, but so often misunderstood. Little by little, I'm building an archive of valuable stories, experiences, and tips to help you maximize yours. The show is supported by founding sponsor and B Corp, Illustration X. Take a look at their stunning range of illustrators and animators now at illustrationx.com. If you like the music for the show, it's by Dirty Freud, who you can listen to on Spotify and all good music streaming services. Today, as we wade into 2024, a brand new year, I'm providing you with a creativity checklist. After 10 years of researching and writing the Creative Condition book, I've got something of a 120,000 word manuscript, so I've taken it upon myself to work through and pull what I felt were really important themes for the time that we live, and hopefully something to help you take care of your creativity, recognise weaknesses, where you might be hitting it strong, where you might need to improve to get the most out of your creativity this year. Hello and welcome to the show guys, how are you doing? Tuesday morning, as I sit down to record this I apologise in advance if you can hear anything in the background. I think it's stopped now, but there's been one of those dubious helicopters that's just kind of circling far and wide. And I don't know about you, but when that happens, I've got a ridiculously powerful imagination, which is good and bad, as you might know, uh, if you've got the same. But I always just picture, but like where we live, it's quite the back gardens. They kind of face onto the other houses and it forms almost like a massive courtyard, two terraces uh, facing onto each other, terrace at the top, which is the main road, shops and what have you, and at the bottom terraces that, that form a big square and the only way in really is if you've got access as a resident. But I still just have visions of some goblin leaping over my fence. I've watched far too many BBC dramas and just holding me hostage while his helicopter circles overhead in my studio and I've got stuff to be doing anyway. Sorry to drop you in with that, but that's where the head's at today. Um, <laughs> welcome back if you're a regular listener. Thank you. I've, I, do you know, before I forget, I've, I've noticed, um, I asked the regular listeners if they'd be kind enough to leave me a review on their preferred listening platform. And it's been steadily creeping up, so thank you so much. I, I, I like Spotify, I don't think it, it lets you know who's done it, so... I don't really have a way to thank you directly, but I've noticed the numbers creeping up and uh, there's quite a few on Apple Podcasts now, actually. I think getting on for 50, which is really good. The reason I ask for that is because it gives a nice level of trust. If someone's just stumbled across the show and they don't know me and they don't know what it's about and all that stuff, then uh, it's a lovely way to, to give me a little bit of credibility and kind of go, okay, some people like this, it's worth a listen. You know, it's that whole thing of, it's always oh, meant to be all right because you've seen some good reviews. Anyway, that's why I ask, so thank you. Keep them coming. Um, what have you been up to? Do you know, for this show, I'm, I'm trying to raise engagement with my audience. Oh, and, and hello, if you're new, by the way. <laughs> thank you for listening. I have been working a bit harder in the first week of this new year to, to tell people directly that the show exists, and some have come back and said I'm already a listener, which is absolutely lovely. Others have gone, fantastic, I'm looking out for creative podcasts, always got an ear to the ground, so cheers. Um, it can be that simple, but it's doing the legwork. It's finding the time to market it properly directly to people. Anyway, um, 
what was I waffling on about? Oh, I've lost my train of thought. That's a good start, isn't it? Happy New Year. <laughs> um, thank you to everyone who, who took the time to listen to the last episode, episode 207, with Idler editor and founder Tom Hodgkinson, a personal favourite because Tom is such a character and we, my word, we traversed far and wide on that one. Um, he, the Idler is a kind of magazine about greater fulfilment in our life through a slower pace of living and more of a focus on happiness and learning and pursuit and creativity and less about the rat race and um you know spend and earn ethic as tom put it really interesting character wonderful mag can't recommend his book an idler's manual enough for anyone who's looking for a bit more headspace and a bit more leisure time in amongst their creative pursuits do go and check it out well worth it helped me out of a tough spot last year by getting me some really great mindfulness uh, and idling ideas uh, that was a that was a popular one sometimes and it's something i want to do more this year is go beyond just the arts and design and, and art which is always going to be the core of this show i think and that's you know i i guess the people who it's going to help perhaps the most i don't know maybe um given that I am an illustrator and I'm going to be talking to designers and artists and art directors, but also writers and, you know, I'll speak to coppers. I've had firefighters on the show. I've had Olympians. I've had neuroscientists. I've had nutritionists, psychologists, and I want to keep broadening that. I've put some emails out this week, some really interesting people. If any of those come back, it's going to be good. But what I worry about sometimes is that a lot of you guys being kind of designers and artists, that you might kind of go, do you know what? I'm going to skip this week's and come back when he's got another designer on because... You know, he's off talking to a ex-convict or whatever. So <laughs> I'd love your feedback on that, by the way. Um, I, I like the balance. I like to inform creativity, even if it is creativity within the arts, with a really broad taste palette of people, you know, of experiences and professions and areas of expertise. So that's where I'm at. Uh, it was Tom Hodgkinson. We've also got another one like that coming up with Alex Pask, who's a judo cow, which is the word for someone who competes in judo to the highest level, by the way. And we're talking flow states and optimal performance, and it's really good. And you wouldn't believe how many crossovers there are with flow states and optimal performance in art and design. It's really quite uncanny. So that, look out for that one. That's coming soon. I had a magic conversation with Sarah Boris last week. You might have seen Sarah at the moment. She's got so much relevant work at the moment. Some of it kind of activism and we get into all that stuff and about being sensitive and having to go into what she brilliantly calls the care bear phase after working on a heavy project and you know there's enough things to aim our activism out at the moment in the world so that was a blinding conversation and that's going to be my next guest episode after what i've got coming up for you today but first quickly a big thank you to the founding sponsor of the show illustration x my representatives in the illustration world really great bunch doing so much good work for creative independent professionals do go and have a look at their news section with all the latest project info their social media channels at we are illustration x on instagram and of course their website where you can find the global range of illustrators and animators now and all those wonderful portfolios illustrationx.com um but today what i wanted to do when i like these episodes these kind of list based episodes the new year is a good time for it and this year coming back in you find me at a position where i'm in mad preparation zone for the creative condition book which is out on march 28th i don't think i've publicly announced that yet but march 28th is going to be the official release date for my second non-fiction book 
the creative condition. Uh, it was Kickstarter funded to get me off the ground with the first print run. We are onto the last proofread now. The typesetting is done to a draft finish level. It's looking lovely. I'm so happy about it. I'm so excited to bring that to you. But what I'm doing with all this proofreading is working back through the manuscript. And a part of my plan this year is to start looking into creative coaching and consultation. And a part of that exercise is for me to distill all the core aspects of creativity that I've written about in this book. And what it gave me was a wonderful outline for a big two-part episode. Started out thinking this was going to be a one-off, but my word, there's a lot to work through. Might be a long one, I apologise in advance, but I am going to break down a creative checklist for the year. And by checklist, it doesn't mean that you're going to have to go through all this and do it as a homework exercise or anything. It might be that nothing applies to you. It might be that one point applies to you, and I think if one point applies to you, then it's got value. And what I want to do is, is go through all these things that I think are really important to stay on top of and think about in terms of your creativity. And if you do that, I genuinely believe that you will improve or you will keep at the highest level if that's where you are. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to dive in. Um, so let's kick off then. So number one, how do you define creativity? I wanted to go in with that at the start because that's the opening of the book. It's the age old, the big question, uh, what is creativity? There is not one agreed definition, but if we're thinking of creativity as applied imagination and innovation um, and the kind of drawing of connections between things that not everyone sees, then we are somewhere close, are we not? That's how I've interpreted it. That's the basis of this book, The Creative Condition. That's the basis of this podcast. It is not about being artistic. It is really important to separate the two. And that is also an early chapter in this book. And that trips so many people up because they think that because they can't draw or they don't have an overt music talent, that they're not creative. And that's insane because as human beings with consciousness, we are therefore by default creative people. Um, so I wanted to use, um, give you an example of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's definition in his 1996 book, Creativity. The Psychology of Discovery and Invention, um, which is an idea or action that is new or valuable. I think that's lovely too. So I think if you consider those three definitions, you start to find something of an outline of what we're considering creativity for the basis of this chat. That's what I'm doing with this episode. I'm hoping to give you a certain amount of nuts and bolts that form optimal creativity so that if there's something lacking one of these things you've maybe not considered or you haven't stayed on top of i hope that what this is going to do coming into 2024 is give you some very tangible actionable ideas for getting there so number two emotional and intellectual creativity balance this is something that's come up quite a lot in recent episodes and it's about identifying two very distinct forms of creativity so intellectual creativity would be a client brief that maybe you've got no personal steer on. This isn't a personal project. This isn't something you would choose to do in your spare time. However, it does engage your creativity to deliver on a client's brief and deliverables. That said, it remains in the camp of intellectual creativity because it is our jobs. It is our clearing the deck. It is delivering um, the expected to a degree. Of course, within that, we can be creative, we can deliver the unexpected, but ultimately we are serving an initial brief, right? And then you have emotional creativity, which is your what you want to say about what's inside of your brain and your lived experience, your take on the world or an aspect of the world. That is emotional creativity. And it was Peleg Top who said on a recent episode that if we don't exercise our emotional creativity, we will burn out, we will stagnate 
in our intellectual creativity and we will question ourselves and we will reach a place where we have to make a breakneck turn or even a u-turn even start again there's a third part that i wanted to bring to this and i haven't really mentioned it too often in the past and it came up on an episode with craig oldham now craig was a child of the miners' strike in Barnsley in West Yorkshire, sorry, South Yorkshire, in 1985-85. His, his dad was a prominent part. His dad was attacked by police officers at the protests when Thatcher's government wanted to shut the mines in the UK, and it killed a lot of livelihoods. And all the protests and the strikes needed graphics and placards, and that was all created by those families in the, the houses. And Craig referred to it as kitchen table creativity. Um, you know, what's in the drawer, sellotape, scissors, felt pens, um, and yet it engages this very emotional part of our creativity to fight for a cause. So I've used that in this instance to refer to the kind of creativity that we might tackle a small routine problem with greater efficiency or effectiveness that we would you know, um, then we would a professional task. It's worth keeping an eye on that part of your creativity. So, you know, what are you doing around the house? How do you resolve problems in your day-to-day -day life? Because you come at that with a very natural form of creativity. And I just think it's worth observing that with an idea that you can distill things and apply it in your intellectual and emotional creativity. You might otherwise overlook you know it's a very sleepy kind of creativity but certainly worth looking at number three creativity's presence in our broader life so that's this is moving on this is building on kitchen table creativity what creativity in the world around you draws you in why what does it look like um how does that make you feel i think think about which parts of your personality including our shadow which I would define as the parts of ourselves we deem unacceptable. So the things that might make us uncomfortable in social situations, that is a very natural, pure part of who we are, but we kind of tend to mask up or tuck away. Um, you know, I think very much consider that as the personality and build on it with creativity. That's very important. Uh, um, so the parts of the personality that it resonates with, uh, and how we might maximise or manage those. I just think that there's so much out there to observe in terms of what we want to do with our time outside of work. You know, what um, what we laugh about, what we think about, what we do, who we do it with, and where. There's a lot of creativity that goes on within that whether it's jobs work school run whatever observe it take a lot from it because there are great lessons uh, number four creativity in plain sight now this is the name of a chapter in the creative condition and it's about the examples the great some of the great examples in my life that i've come across where a person is very very creative but it's not in a form that society has taught us to consider creative rather than the other artistic stuff so which aspects of your life outside your work require creativity does that come easily is it effective could it be applied to your professional creative output or your emotional creative output uh, what about like i said what about the creativity in those around you on your telly in books what can be learned by observing and understanding other less glorified forms of creativity and spending time in broader circles do you know having varied and uncomfortable conversations 
So, you know, I grew up with a close friend who I very sadly lost recently, who was a construction worker, very, very good construction worker. He never considered himself creative. He very much was. I spent my childhood with this guy. He drew a lot. He and, and again, this is the thing: drawing doesn't nest, drawing does not require creativity. That's something I've been writing about as well. Um, it's the first thing people point to, or like as in you can draw, you're creative, or I can't draw, I'm not creative, and it's crazy. He was a good drawer just by coincidence, but actually his creativity came in a lot of forms, just none that he would have considered creativity because society doesn't teach us that that's the case there's a big case study with a guy called neil andrews who's a, a local kind of diy guy he's a jack of all trades when it comes to built and domestic work and he built the studio that i'm sat talking to you from right now i commissioned him to do that and as part of that conversation i saw great creativity in his work that he didn't think in the slightest was creative so we went for a beer we had a big discussion about it and that's in the book um, my dad, my dad's very creative in many ways, loves film, loves literature, uh, was very creative in his job at the hospital in terms of diffusing distress in vulnerable patients. He was a master of that because he's very personable, he's very likeable, he's very um, easy human being to get along with and he would never have considered any of that creativity but it, can, I can assure you it very much was. Um, Creativity in science. You know, I spoke recently to Susanna Kowalska, who was a computer, computational microbiologist using machine learning to study the gut microbiome. Sounds very uh, technical and scientific, and it very much is. However, she's very creative, and we talked at length about the creativity in science, about the levels of subjectivity, even when there's a fixed outcome that needs to be reached in terms of, um, you know, medicine or whatever it might be. So look around you. Creativity is everywhere in plain sight, and that's an, I think that's an actionable point for this year. It's point number four. Uh, lots to be learned there, whether it's your own or other people's. Just take time to see creativity at work in all avenues of life. Number five, valuing who and what you are. So do you? I wanted to start this by asking, do you consider yourself intelligent? Intellectual? Because I used to lump the two in the same basket, and I very much believed I was stupid up until a certain age and believe me I can be <laughs> I can be a completely stupid dick at times but who can't it took me years to focus on my strengths and manage it and maximize my weaknesses and recognize that I was intelligent if not notably intellectual and my understanding of the difference is that intellectual relates more to the consumption and retention of often complex information about a broad range of topics whereas intelligence to me, is more about awareness and interpretation of the world around us. And critically, the ability to use that material to, prog to progress, adapt, and achieve uh, positive outcomes in our lives. To this day, I have a hard time debating, arguing, articulating a point without preparation. But I am a great reader of people. I'm highly sensitive and attuned to my environment. And I'm expressive and creative. Uh, this is an example shared by Russell Bishop, who is an author and consultant and executive coach. And he wrote this for the Huffington Post. Imagine that you want to learn a language. The intellectual approach might be to read a bunch of books about the language, while an intelligent approach might be to hang out with people who actually speak the language. The intellectual approach may result in someone who knows all the rules of grammar, but who is incapable of actually carrying on a conversation. 
the intelligent approach may produce someone who is fluent, but not necessarily able to articulate the rules. So on that basis, my suggestion is to keep spending some time getting to know yourself and knowing that whatever you do have to offer is unique because it's yours and it's very valuable. So don't listen to the incessant shouting and empty expressions flooding the social media landscape and be really wary, in particular, of hangovers that a lot of us carry from being a creative person with a different form of intelligence in a school system where intellectual ability and academic intelligence rule supreme. Just because a thing's not celebrated widely does not mean it won't be your difference maker. You know, a lot of the things I was uh, would get in trouble for at school or uh, felt alienated because of, they become my my sort of, you know, leading traits that have, that have built a career as a visual communicator and a writer and everything else. So, you know, uh, I encourage you to do the same. Number six, water those plants. So there's a chapter called The Wilting Flower. And it's kind of my way of saying that um, confidence and maintenance plays a bigger part of anything in our creativity and the momentum and the build and how and our relationship with it. So the best definition I've heard of confidence was by Kimberly Wilson on this show, uh, episode 202. She's a psychologist specialising in whole body mental health uh, and nutrition. She's wonderful, really valuable stuff. And Kimberly described confidence as the brain's ability to predict a positive outcome. Simple as that. Not about bravado, not about an innate sense of flair or anything like that that we like to think it is. The brain's ability to predict a positive outcome. So it takes practice and patience to reacquaint with parts of our creativity that we might have lost confidence in. Whether that was through time apart or not getting back on the horse when we've had a knock, you know. Or a, or a failure of some kind. So no matter what it takes, make time for that emotional creativity that I talked about a little while back. And do not restrict it in any way. Make work for you to express yourself with no consideration for context, profit, reception, or any other of the external assessors that we hang on our creativity. Because all of that will come when you've made work that lights up your soul um, Laura Bost, a good friend of mine uh, and founder of Conscious Made Studio Laura's wonderful and she got in touch to ask my, you know, where I stood on personal work and just how personal it could be and what forms it might take on and I love talking about that stuff go back to question one in the new question series where I respond to Stephen Cardwell of Defaultica's question about the validity of personal work where I talk in depth about that but really it can be as personal as you want it can be as mysterious as you want as overt as you want it's there's no rules when it comes to personal work um and i think that spending time with our creativity and learning to love it and love the things that we are attracted to no matter how weird or non-mainstream really just helps build confidence and momentum so that that flower stands up tall and reaches towards that beautiful sun which is our own passion um Here's a little thing that I wrote in that chapter in the book. It is madness to me, borderline cruelty, that this attention to the human and the creativity within is not granted when people are young enough to understand and regain ownership of their lives. It is not just young people. 
capitalism and the lack of room to fail without heavy financial repercussions leave millions of people feeling caged in ill-suited roles far away from the better suited path on an unbreakable loop of chasing the wrong ideals materialism excess a series of hollow attempts to mask this pain still lacking the tools of self-expression to begin to plot the right way out of their confines this vicious cycle can last an entire lifetime sad stuff doesn't have to be that way so pay attention and water those plants that's tip number six number seven so graham wood steve wilkin uh two friends of mine graham wood founder of tomato steve wilkin uh my old university lecturer on the ba illustration honors degree at uclan university of central lancashire um both call for very much a return to art school ethos and by art school ethos i mean getting away from this commodif this horrible commodification of creativity that has come about through the raise of tuition fees and the intensification of this late stage capitalist era that we're in as the economy gets you know more and more concentrated towards the wealthy at the top and the rest of us have to scratch around and chase our asses to make ends meet um and Steve in particular talks about the tuition fees creating a business relationship between tutor and student where no one's willing to take risks and they want the best outcome, the best return on their investment. Horrible, horrible stuff and goes against everything that made art school beautiful. And Steve talks about this um, in the book about how it stopped even the earliest first years from experimenting because they're so fixed on the end point of the end of that degree because of the money they're paying. And who could blame them? It's a horrible, toxic thing that everyone suffers because of you know and graham you know for the on the same token he he looks at this in the commercial environment on the, the data-driven mindsets of a lot of people you know the lack of willingness to let something fail or try something interesting very very um damning i guess dark what might be another word um but the point being for this number seven i wanted you to, to think about play and practicing scarcity because scarcity drives so many interesting results and such creativity and innovation and imagination where you might not go there when you have all the tools so graham talks about the scarcity of equipment at central st martin's in the late 80s early 90s when he was a student there and how it it forced you to be really thrifty and um creative in your approach and how you used the things that were available to you that you could find in skips and all that kind of stuff and i'm a massive believer in that and i do worry about the all of us having these essentially computers in our pockets now that it, a lot of that might be at risk you know um so my tip is to try making work without your key tools i don't mean get rid of all of your kit but have a look at what you might remove as a conscious act of self-sabotage to force yourself to reconsider the things that you accept as an unmovable truth. So I'm talking about, you know, if you're entirely digital, when was the last time you picked up a paintbrush? And was that through fear or laziness? I can't know that. But I do worry about people who just go one way only and, and nail their colours to a certain mast because it's dangerous and it puts you at risk. And I think that as AI becomes more powerful, we're going to need i think the prominence is going to be returned to the things with story with character with humanity um i just think it provokes innovative and interesting responses and it's a great way to break learned behaviors 
and regain curiosity and unpredictability in our practice. Uh, number eight, personality and the self. How comfortable are you with you? Do you know your personality? Do you love it? Do you acknowledge and know about the flaws? And have you tried to at least manage them, if not maximize them, the silver linings? I always think there's, there's, there's no wasted time when it comes to time with the self and seeing how you go with this stuff. Are you at one with your shadow? I know I mentioned it earlier, but what what is the darkest version of yourself? You know, um, having twins, they're they're not four yet. They're close to close to four now. I have been so observant because it's so much fun to watch their natural behaviours and tendencies, and they're like chalk and cheese in some regards. So Frank, my son, has very much a kind of engineer's introspective brain. From the moment he could pick things up with his hands, he was fascinated by mechanisms and cogs and switches and wheels and would investigate them in depth with great joy for a long time. Martha's got a little bit of that, my daughter, but she is so expressive and so lively and loves to hit the broad strokes, you know? And I love watching that. And... We do this stuff naturally and we, we continue to do this stuff naturally as adults. However, when consciousness and self-awareness increases in adolescence, I think we start to censor ourselves and shape ourselves according to certain belief systems or the desired, you know, the zeitgeist behaviours or the, um, the expected and the fitting in and all that stuff. And I think that creativity, really optimal creativity demands that we go back to those childhood natural bits of ourselves. So how comfortable are you with all that? You know, do you shirk at the idea of someone seeing a certain bit of yourself, a certain trait or a certain old version of yourself? If so, why? What scares you about that? Why would you give a shit about what somebody else thinks? I think it's really important to attack those um, ways that we that we cut ourselves off from, from operating with purity and with honesty and authenticity. And I know these are uh, words that are thrown around social media and it's hit and miss as to how well they're used. But it's absolutely true and these cliches exist for a reason. Um, I talked to Micah Purnell back on, give me a second and I will tell you which episode forget um i talked to micah on episode 116 about advertising and ethics and we went back to to micah's roots and he's a wonderful guy and he talks about his dad being a like a pastor i think he was at the church and he was always drawn to those kind of powerful language sound bites from the bible but also letter forms just naturally something in him was drawn and he would use his knife and fork to cut letter forms into like toast and stuff and i love that story and i think it's great and i like to look at that stuff in myself and to look at so i'm very haphazard and clumsy and i did this thing in the book and it's a top trumps kind of a metric my personality you know so if anyone's aware of the game top trumps it's a it's a kind of card battle game where you have a card each it will often fall within a certain thing so you can get like wwe top trumps football top trumps barbie top trumps whatever um there's all these different sets for whatever you're into and it's essentially you measure characteristics and traits and magic abilities up against one another so let's say it's x-men you might get wolverine with like ferocity nine uh cyclops ferocity 
four, you know what I mean? And if you chose ferocity as your metric to play against that other person, you would win and you would claim his Cyclops card. So I, I love to do that with myself and look at my own traits. So haphazard clumsy, uh, you know, nine. But that is also the genesis of my art style. So that becomes a really good thing. So it's the duality of all these personality traits. That's an exercise that I've kind of laid down in the book. And I think that any of us could benefit from exploring. So well worth considering that about yourself and getting comfortable with all that good and bad stuff. And knowing that also the good stuff can often be bad. So another thing I've looked at is that I am incredibly passionate and driven. Never struggle for ideas, but the downside of that is I get overwhelmed with ideas. I overwork and get burned out sometimes. So then that probably becomes a one rather than a nine. Do you know what I mean? So it's worth looking at what's good and bad right across the personality spectrum. So get comfortable with the personality in the self is number eight. I gave a little example here and I, um, it's got finesse, two, dexterity, one, organization, three, passion, nine, drive, eight, versatility, six, overthinking, eight, sensitivity, nine. Any one of those traits could be flipped on its head as good or bad. It's about knowing how to manage or maximize all of it. Anyway, that's number eight. Number nine, course correction. The best-selling author Stephen R. Covey said, if the ladder is not leaning against the right wall, every step we take just gets us to the wrong place faster. So we have to course correct regularly. How regularly that is, I guess it's up to the individual. But I think creativity constantly evolves, as do each of us, as we grow. Have any parts of your practice become a habitual echo of something that might not be as well aligned with you, you know, today as it once was when you started doing it? I think you have to be very honest and consider within the parameters of your circumstances how you might need to revitalise, change or replace those things. Is your ladder against the right wall, I guess, is the question. I've heard stories and they're kind of haunting stories about people who became revered or the best in the world at what they did, showered with adulation, only to admit in later years that they never loved it. Um, you know, it's, the success trap is one of the chapters in the book where I get into this. Success has to be from within. It has to be about fulfillment and happiness. Because if it's purely financial or about titles and external validation, you can waste so much time and you can end up in a, in a tricky place where it's very hard to get out of. We've all been there, you know, where we've where those, those living costs have climbed so much and we've built this lifestyle because of a certain amount of success and then we can't get out of it when we realise that success is something different and, it, you know, we need to bring those costs down. Um, I think to consciously know and accept the rewards and sacrifice of the system we live in is one thing. We have to pay the bills. We have to have a degree of comfort. Nobody likes poverty. Nobody wants to be poor. Um, but it's another thing altogether to not stop to consider or reconsider what success looks like and be ready for it when it changes throughout our life because we change and our creativity changes. 
after all these years, I look back and realize that the one thing that earned me an early reputation as a creative type, as I mentioned earlier, was my drawing. And that wasn't where my creativity lay at all. I was a good draftsman and it was nice to hear that I was good at something. And thanks to learning to draw accurately from my mom, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't unfounded. I was a good drawer. But my love of storytelling and curiosity about the human condition was very much the basis of my biggest passions. I realised that at the age of 38. I also realised at 38 that I've always had a writer's brain. It takes a lot of life experience to understand the long term of it all, you know, sometimes. So as a kid, you know, of, of course, I, I, yeah, I'm creative. I draw, you know, how could I not be? <laughs> But drawing is often not creative. It's often just a, an, an A to B skill. It's a, you know, is it any different to cutting a wall, a piece of wood for a carpenter? Not necessarily. Both things can be creative, but it really depends on what we're doing with it. Uh, I had to live enough life to see that this storytelling thing was underpinning everything I wanted to make and do. Because understanding creativity just wasn't a facet of my education. That's not a personal lament or regret, but it's something I'd love to see change to accelerate such personal discoveries for others because education really does need an overhaul in that regard. Anyway, course correction. Correct your course. Make sure you're still on track. Number 10. Reconsider the overlooked. So we pass things every day in our immediate environment that we, we don't see, that are invisible to us reconnecting or connecting for the first time with our surroundings and learning to reconsider them can be pivotal for our creativity with our routines and our thousand mile an hour modern lifestyles um, we're on treadmills so we miss so much and our senses are always spoken for you know so it's headphones on every walk it's thoughts about what we're going to do when we get wherever we're going it's thoughts about, did I piss that person off at home before I left and do I now need to message and apologise them? We're so distracted and, and not here in the moment and here and now, you know? So what are you missing that's right under your nose? There's a great story uh, that Jarvis Cocker tells on Adam Buxton's podcast about the famous incident, that, that the pivotal moment in his career where he had been seeing the life of an artist as this lofty, almost Parisian thing, this, you know, classical lifestyle that he had to aspire to and what it meant to be an artist and all this other stuff. And then he fell out of a window trying to impress a girl and broke his arm and ended up laid up in hospital. And it was during that mental downtime that he reflected and realised that actually there was a lot of creative value in the life that he was living, no matter how down and dirty that might have been in Sheffield. And that was the genesis of the pulp that we came to love and know, all those lyrics and all those songs. So, you know, what are you overlooking? Are you aspiring to something that you don't need to aspire to? Maybe there's great worth in whatever it is you're doing now, whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever little idiosyncrasies that are in your immediate environment that no one else can see in the way you're seeing them. Well worth going back and looking at that. Regular listeners might have listened to the Cheeky Batman episode on this podcast where I explored this idea of re-energising our surrounds and looking for the magic in the muck. So there was a little graffiti drawing that looked vaguely like Batman on a piece of electrical, electrical furniture. And my kids would run the last part of the walk back from town to go and see Cheeky Batman and it would just light them up in such a way that got their imaginations going. 
that it was beautiful to me. And I told a story about how my dad once drew Bert from Sesame Street on a stile in the middle of nowhere where I grew up in West Yorkshire. And the magic of going and seeing that was such a lovely illustration of the colour in our surroundings and our environment. And it's up to us to gain the perspective to see the value in that. And it really can inform your creativity. Um, if you read my book, Your Mom and Other Stories from the Back Streets of Britain, that's 21 short stories, fiction stories, all based on 21 commonly found items on the streets of Britain. So dirty underpants, cigarette butt, beer can, um, road cone, uh, knackered hubcap. There was, there was loads, there was 21 of them. And some of them are quite derivative, like direct to the object. Other stories are just a complete leap. And a total fictionalization and a really quite quirky approach and i loved that and it really brought to life even the grubbiest things in the streets where i live and in my uh, know what i mean series again it's just this kind of non-judgmental depiction in my illustrative style of the things that i notice in the streets that other people might not see there's a lot to be said about creativity and, and uh, a big portion of that that's going on number 11 check your tech and go scream at the sky so i mentioned earlier about emotional creativity and how it's essential and how sometimes i, I just think we absolutely need to obey our impulses we live such censored existences sometimes now with cancel culture and everything else and i'm not talking about going out and getting wrecked and upsetting someone or damaging something but we are animals and we have needs and we have desires and we have to blow off steam. That might be a run. It might be a bike ride. It might be parkour. It might be, I don't know what it is. It could be anything for anyone. But are you, how are, how are you blowing off steam? Are you, are you getting that release? Because I think we have to. Again, this is a part of a mental, you know, mental well, good, good mental health and well-being balancing our screen time with physical activity and mental release is vital for well-being and of course creativity um here's an excerpt from a study um done by the university of queensland about the uh, impacts of too much screen time on children very interesting Commenting on the findings, University of Queensland School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences researcher and associate professor Asad Khan said, excess screen time effects can include depression, obesity, poor quality of life, unhealthy diet and decreased physical and cognitive abilities, whereas regular physical activity can improve physical fitness, cardiometabolic health, bone health, academic performance, executive function, mental health and can reduce weight gain. Combining increased physical activity with reduced screen time showed a gradual beneficial effect on mental well-being across genders. One hour of physical activity and no more than two hours of screen time a day provided optimal mental well-being. I can certainly vouch for that. We've all felt that horrible feeling of all day staring at a screen and not enough activity. It's rubbish. It makes you really lethargic and slow, you know, slow-minded and I think it's so detrimental to creativity and I know that it's not always possible if your job requires you to be at a screen all day. But being mindful of this, checking that tech, staying on top of it, especially in our free time if we've got a job that requires we do that all day, it's really important to get offline. Um, former eBay chief curator and founder of Mood Rise, who I had on the podcast, Michael Phillips Moskowitz. Uh, Mood Rise is an app designed to help manage digital nutrition. 
Um, and Michael's not the first person that I've heard raise the alarm over unfettered digital consumption in our society. He said about this, the five foundational elements of human happiness are comprised of diet, sleep, exercise, interpersonal relationships and vocation, which you could call purpose. The last one, purpose, is not easy, certainly not now. Michael believes that there's a new element of human happiness. He says the average person today, especially in the West, is consuming an average of 12 hours and 7 minutes. That's mad. Um, of digital assets, of course, willfully or otherwise a day. If they sit in a cafe or play music, it still counts. It's having an impact on the way we feel, so what are we going to do about it? Uh, this this factors prominently in the contemporary human experience, and yet we haven't thought carefully about how to control it. He went on to say, I don't want the approach to digital drugs or new digital material to be modelled after the US regulatory policy. Far from it. I want it to be modelled after the huge strides and the meaningful gains we've made in awareness of food and its impact on not just physical health, but mental well-being too and apply some of those systems and principles and assign them to the digital sphere. So I think each of us must be mindful at all times of our digital consumption and our physical and emotional needs and our animalistic needs, you know? Um, for me, painting on a big canvas, writing a fiction story, walking the dog, this is all my version of screaming at the sky. So what does yours look like? Um, I actually was fortunate enough to interview uh, John McGuinness back on an episode I did let me find that for you and I can give you uh, John McGuinness is the greatest of all time when it comes to time trial racing motorbikes broke many land speed records in the sport uh, episode 31 Seaside Art and Creative Regeneration it was part of a pro project in Morecambe where John's from that I was involved with I got to do a full building sized mural of John McGuinness and the local sports heroes uh, that was projected and painted onto the wall by oh I've gone blank on his name that's really bad um, give me a second I need to find it I got to credit him because he's awesome ba -ba 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 -ba. I'm gonna to have to come back to you can't find it in the notes ah uh, oh, no it's gone can't remember it anyway guy Markham, i will put the link in the show notes uh he projected and painted the mural overnight incredible skills i, I illustrated it and he did it that way but john talks about the importance of space for young people to go and play and make some mistakes it's so hard to come by now with land ownership and with corporate culture and every bit of you know industrial space getting fucking mcdonald's or a starbucks put on it instead of a, a playground or a recreational area or just left just left this wasteland so kids can hang out you know what i mean it's i think it's really really damning and dark and bad for creativity but john talks about how his dad ran a bike workshop so he'd always be tearing around on a little motorbike um or riding on on people's farmland and stuff and they didn't have a problem with it back then and how hard it is now for young kids to find space to go out and bike and do positive things like that. Really, really important. Anyway, number 12. Arrange a meeting with your shadow. So I came across with this concept of the shadow, and I've mentioned it already. You know, the, the, the bits we, we try to hide away, the darker parts of ourselves that we need to assimilate and welcome into our lives. 
Um, and I came across this concept while watching the documentary Stutz. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's on Netflix and it's wonderful. It's by Jonah Hill and it's a documentary with his psychotherapist, Phil Stutz. It's really beautiful and I learned so many good um, mindfulness techniques there and, and physiotherapy techniques that have helped me a lot since. And one of them is about the shadow. Now, uh, since the age of about 14, I've been at peace with this part of myself, which was largely enabled by an incredibly open and honest set of friends who championed all those flaws that most teenagers would have died at the thought of being exposed, you know? And it's been one of my greatest creative enablers, not just through my edgier work where it comes through, but in the way that I enter new relationships and uh, conduct and present myself out there. You know, great work is often characterised by those raw, less openly discussed parts of the human condition, or vulnerabilities, you might want to call it. So the first adult fiction author I ever got into was uh, Dean Koontz. Stumbled across him in the WH Smiths, and um, he's wonderful. And I, I continued reading his fiction for years, even though some of them became a little bit... I could see the patterns after a while which lost a little bit of the attraction. However, I still adored his ability to create such complicated, layered villains. And they were so dark. The things these villains did and thought was just truly uh, abhorrent. And I remember Laura, my wife, reading a copy of one of them and, and being appalled that his imagination could spawn this level of um, devilry. And I remember her saying, can you, what's going through that head? Like, he must be messed up. And I remember turning around and going, I can almost guarantee you he's absolutely not. And I bet he's lovely. And that's because he's at one with his shadow, with his inner self. He's completely at peace with the darkness within and he's got his vehicle for expressing it in a way that's constructive and creative. And I think when you can get there in your life, it's just so good for your well-being. Um... You know, I, I often talk about one bit of my shadow and my, my shadow is kind of my teenage, maybe like 14 year old self. 14 is probably the closest I've ever come to feeling what might have been depression. Because I was, I hadn't met the group of friends that helped me to understand myself at that age. And it was all about fitting in at school. I felt stupid at school because creativity wasn't valued and I hadn't even started to be truly creative because of that. It's a double edged sword. I had no form of outward identity, so my clothes were shit, my hair was shit. Uh, didn't know how to talk to girls, even though I, you know, was quite a romantic chap at heart. And it was just, it wasn't a good, it wasn't a bad time. I was a relatively happy teenager, but I did feel a little lost around that age until I met some really important close friends that remain my closest friends to this day. And, but one comical aspect of that was my competitive nature. I was really competitive. And on Mario Kart against my brother, I was an absolute nightmare dick. <laughs> and, you know, all kinds of stunts going on when I lost. And and yet, I love that part of myself at the same time because I'm able to take that competitive nature and turn it into gold when it comes to my career and my drive and getting through the, the trickier parts. So, that, you know, I think that's an example of Shadow. And I welcome that guy back in now. I laugh at his fashion. I, I love his vulnerability and how he couldn't even look, you know, make eye contact with a girl without wilting. And I think it's beautiful now. And I'm very much at peace with that. And that's a great part of who I am today. And I, and I love that so much now. Totally at peace with all that, you know. But you have to get there. And it, it takes a, a, a lot of time in the mirror. 
So I would recommend to anyone to sit and spend time identifying your shadow. What does it look like? Maybe try drawing it. There's a scene, a lovely scene in Stutz where Jonah Hill brings out that very version of himself where he's really overweight and his confidence was completely lacking and he had no self-esteem and he brings out the cardboard cutout of a picture of him at that time you know and puts his arm around it and says he's here now he's here with me he's a part of me and in Phil Stutz's book The Tools which is co-authored by Barry Michaels he outlines this visualization exercise where he learned it kind of on the fly while he was crashing and burning at a public speaking event by visualizing that part of himself out there on the stage with him so it's a really interesting exercise and it's one of the trickier ones i found but there's great worth in that too um so i don't know where i'd be without my shadow so go and sort that meeting with yours number 13 an alternate ending what stories are you telling yourself that might be challenged and rewritten because our personal narrative and responses to challenges define so much of how we use or don't use our creativity could, could something you currently perceive as a barrier be an opportunity to do something in a way that benefits from restriction? Because, you know, we tell ourselves, well, I can't do that because of this and I can't, couldn't possibly be that guy because X, Y, and Z. And sometimes there's truth to that, but other times it's almost, uh, it's something we've come to believe about ourselves that is based on something that is no longer truth, you know? And I think if we interrogate ourselves and do the course correcting and, and find ways to um, get rid of what I call restriction fiction and where that story begun and identifying those roots and eliminating them because you can always change gears. You can always be better, um, quieter. What, whatever the change is you want to make, you can get there, you know? I see so many people kind of snarking at other people because they you know maybe someone somebody said something in a lecture and someone can't do what they've done in the same way because they've got kids or uh, a lot of hours to work in their job and they take it personally like it was offered to them as advice specifically to them and i think you can always reframe that uh you know every now and then i love to challenge my own beliefs about myself and the results can be pivotal parenthood brought unprecedented time and energy constraints into my life but i've tried and in many instances succeeded to tailor my creative approaches accordingly to make these limitations positive things. And I have my early days illustrating for The Guardian to thank for one great example of how pressure and unforgiving time constraints can pay off. Your mum and Isolation Watch were short, punchy books because they had to be. And I have no doubt that had I had more time to work on those, I would have overthought and overworked them. And my narrative could have been new parent too tired and believe me on many many occasions that has been the case but i wrote those books because i knew that i needed to practice a tiny amount of emotional creativity during a huge new challenge um, and transformative testing time in order to remain happy perhaps a negative story you've been telling yourself has been told through fear apprehension someone else's judgment or maybe fear of failure and it might not be so it's worth making sure, always. Um, so here's an interesting thing that I came across while researching the book. Um, I hope it's of use. Let me find it. Negative thinking tends to emanate from our default mindset, fear, known better as negativity bias. 
which psychologist Catherine Moore describes as our proclivity to attend to, learn from and use negative information far more than positive information. Um, and that's from not all emotions are created equal, the negativity bias in social, in social and emotional development. Um, and that's Vanish, Grossman and Woodward, 2008, if you want the reference. We can think of it as an asymmetry in how we process negative and positive occurrences to understand our world, one in which negative events elicit more rapid and more prominent responses than non-negative events. Of the origins of this, she says, Negativity bias is thought to be an adaptive evolutionary function. And that's from Emotion, Attention and Negativity Bias, studied through event-related potentials by Karate, Masado, Tapia and Hin Hinojosa, 2001. Thousands of years ago, our ancestors were exposed to immediate environmental threats that were no longer we no longer need to worry about. Predators, for example, and being more attentive to these negative stimuli played a useful role in survival. Very, very interesting. And then another way to look at this is through doom loops and delight loops. So a friend of mine and um, illustrator and lecturer, Tash Wilcox, was on the podcast. Um, let me find the episode again. So Tash was on the show, episode 126, if you want to go back and listen, and she talks about doom loops and delight loops. And this is what she says. There's a book called Liminal Thinking by Dave Gray. He explores how we built ideas because we believe X, Y, and Z. And when you really drill down, it's all built on something from so long ago that you've forgotten why it was your belief. Or it's built on something that wasn't quite right at the time or something that's changed. We're all going around with these ideas in our heads. Dave writes about doom loops in the book and he refers to dogs. The doom loop example is, they had a dog, the dog was beautiful, but the dog was approached by their son while it was eating a bone, and the dog bit the child. At that point, he could have said, bad dog, or the dog gets put down or taken somewhere else. Instead, they went to a vet. The vet said, something bad has happened to the dog, and the dog believes that the child is trying to take its bone, so it must bite the child. At that point, to reinforce that the dog is bad, to take away its bone, is to perpetuate the doom loop. The Z the idea is built on an idea that is not real anymore what would be better is to establish that the dog is good what they did was they took the dog to the park and every time it saw another dog they gave both dogs a treat eventually the dog learns that there is nothing to fear and it can now eat the bone without the threat of the child in this case the doom loop reinforces the bad story the delight loop is breaking this cycle and creating something that is positive Number 14, unlearning behaviours. So continuing this theme of self-auditing, unlearning behaviours and tired habits is a well worthwhile pursuit. There's a, a, a slightly ridiculous story that I use in the Creative Condition book, and it's about how I recognised after all these years that whenever I go in the gent's bathroom in the Waterloo Station in London, I go to the far right wall and the third urinal from the right every time. And this dawned on me after all these years and it just made me wonder how many other behaviours I was doing out of some kind of habit without challenging. You know, like tired habits. Um, because without with adult self-awareness and consciousness, we fall into certain ways of doing things and stop playing around, don't we? So 
how many things within your creative practice do you just do because you always did when you might need to correct that course or challenge a certain behavior i think this ties in with number seven practicing scarcity and that's one way to break learned behaviors and number two emotional creativity that's another arena in which you can start getting used to trying new things and i think we always have to keep pushing for new ways of doing things and and try breaking the rules that we put in place i mentioned earlier you know you all digital and what would that look like if you tried it organically animated how about trying it in a dance these things might feel uncomfortable but seeking discomfort is a hell of a way to grow and if nothing else you'll have some fun and you'll get some new ideas or maybe even just rule a few things out that you shouldn't be wasting your time on um and i think it also pays to accept three life constant constants in our creative process which will improve your resilience in the face of uh, adversity this is also from the documentary stutz and um he marks the three life constants as pain uncertainty and constant work and i think once you can kind of acknowledge that they ain't going away even if they're hard it helps it helps to structure and to formulate and to get rid of self-pity and other things that might restrict our creativity uh, number 15 behavior design so going back to episode 117 i had lauren kelly on the show and it remains one of my favorite episodes and one of my most popular and talks about shows what people always reference because lauren uh, her job is to kind of to do that to challenge behaviors to help people to put behaviors in place and design them to maximize their efficiency their creativity their their fun you know uh, lauren says we make around 35,000 unconscious decisions each day as humans we are very lazy and will avoid making this avoid making decisions if we can she says i apply i apply behavior design to myself despite what i said about social media uh, lauren had discussed the negative impacts of social media's addictive qualities earlier in our interview knowing fine well how destructive it can be i find myself on twitter all the time it doesn't do me any good one of the things I do is preventative behaviour design. For behaviour to happen, motivation, ability and trigger have to be present. So you can present, you can prevent a behaviour by redesigning the triggers to the behaviour. So after our conversation, I always remember I did this studio reorder to make sure that I could see and access all of my kit with ease because sometimes if I don't know where a certain pot of paint or a certain ink is, I will do it in a different style or not, not look for it, which is very damaging. You know and having a visible to-do list or an easily accessible to-do list um, helps me to overcome my naturally unorganized side and also learning how to arrest any negative thoughts through newly established habits so i spent a bit of time reading up on and learning about the fight or flight instinct and why headlines and these pieces of alarming news were sending me on these awful spirals and it wasn't that there wasn't a problem with the news now don't get me wrong what's happening in gaza is unforgivable and we should all be condemning that and you know demanding the ceasefire and everything else and the climate crisis is, is, is awful and it keeps me up at night sometimes but i was gonna send myself under with the amount of time i was thinking about these and the states it was getting me in through the fight or flight instincts so eventually i had to put mechanisms in place that enabled me to think constructively or productively about how i could affect the situation and if i couldn't then 
I had to stop that. I had to get back to being constructive and creative and doing something worthwhile with my time because otherwise I was heading for some kind of breakdown. So um, there you go, behaviour design. Well worth redesigning your habits and your functions, particularly within your creative practice. Number 16, optimal states, flow and forward motion. So take a moment to think about what a flow state looks like to you. We can't turn them on at will, but there will be consistent triggers, um, environments, practices, activities, which will make it likely that you'll enter a flow state. Now, um, a flow state is one of those times when time seems to distort and the work you're doing just flows unconsciously and seems effortless, but you're so productive and it feels amazing and you're on top of the world. That's a flow state. Um, I've got Alex Pask coming up on the show that I mentioned right at the beginning, who is a judoka, and he talks about flow states in fight sports and about, you know, shutting out the crowd and not being able to hear his coach and being so attuned to his opponent's moves that it is almost Matrix-style unconscious behaviours. That's flow states. Um, Back on episode 179 with the lovely Professor Anna Abrahams, she told me, the experience is autotelic, which feels extremely rewarding. When you're in the moment, you feel great. People feel like they're able to reach into parts of their mind that they're unable to access when they're trying to directly go there. There's a certain openness to that state that allows you to get, a, get, get connections you wouldn't normally get at. People feel very positive after this experience. They feel more productive than they normally are. So however you think of that feeling, a flow state, whether it's being attuned to the universe, being into some higher consciousness, or just a, you know, a blast of fortune, it's real. So reflect on it afterwards and trust it and move towards it and give yourself completely to it. And I think that when you do that, you start to recognise some of the conditions that you might be able to influence to help encourage them. Number 17, get idle. So go back to the last episode of this podcast, 207, with Tom Hodgkinson to um, get an understanding of what idling is. It's the fulfillment in life. It's the slower pace so we can enjoy ourselves and engage in activities that bring on flow states and feel amazing. So earlier in point 11, we discussed the dangers of digital excess. Now, building on that, I wanted to touch upon the need to rest our conscious minds so that the unconscious might be able to do its job. Um... An Idler's Manual by Tom Hodgkinson talks about, you know, one activity is staring at a wall. I did that last year after I'd had one of these climate anxiety burnouts. I, I had to go and practice staring at walls to anchor myself back in the moment and, and bring myself to the present so I could break the horrible aftershocks of the fight or flight instinct, which, you know, borderline palpitations at time and clenching my jaw and awful, awful anxiety. Um... And some of the other activities are bench sitting, sky gazing, stroking a pet, playing with a toy. You know, it's, it's simple stuff that we can do within our work, within our normal lives to kind of re-engage with our environment. And I think it's wonderful. So as creative professionals, it's easy to see how we often treat everything as a potential project. But the greatest ideas will only come when we roam in our lives and soak up all kinds of sensory stimulus unconditionally. Leonardo da Vinci, arguably the greatest polymath of all time, spent a great deal of time observing the world around him. The sensitive, creative mind makes connections far and wide, where others see none. 
but it can only do that with the right balance of loud and quiet, activity and rest. Da Vinci on the Doll is a chapter in the Creative Condition book where I consider what it would have looked like had Leonardo da Vinci been born today. Completely hypothetical and probably nonsense because he might have adapted just fine, but I look at how he was probably going to be on the doll from a disadvantaged background and all these other things that might have given him major handicaps. Um, from Jen Graneman and Andre Solo's wonderful Sensitive, The Power of a Thoughtful Mind in an Overwhelming World book, uh, Jen was on episode 200 of the show, The Sensitivity Special, which I highly recommend. Um, from that book, it says that by some estimates, we are now exposed to more information each day than a person living in the Renaissance encountered in their entire lifetime. Can you believe that? It's incredible, isn't it? What's it doing to us? Um, so this year, I'm suggesting that you try putting idling activities into your calendar and treat them with the same respect as client deadlines. Do it test yourself push yourself and i think you'll benefit from it creatively number 18 gut check so whole body mental health i mentioned it earlier kimberly wilson was on episode 202 and she talks about whole body mental health about taking care of the whole human organism instead of treating the mind and the body as separate um it's a brilliant episode. I love talking to Kimberly, and it, her work is ultimately about a healthy brain. It's about psychology, and she talks about how people who were put, who had a healthy diet and were put on a on a, a, a ultra processed Western diet, showed degenerative effects in the brain after five days. That's bad, isn't it? So if you've just got a lifetime of bad diets of like rushed lunches and running out for work with no breakfast, it's having a fundamental negative adverse impact on your creativity, without a doubt. Um, those sandwiches or those pizza runs, those prep lunches, you know, it's like a quick means to an end lunch. Um, it all fucks up your creativity. And this is what Kimberly said on the episode about nutrition. We're supposed to be experts in psychology, the brain and helping people stay well. And actually, what we didn't get taught was how to keep the brain healthy. Let's start at the foundations. What is a healthy brain? How do we get one? How do we support it? The brain is a foundation of mental life and mental health, as well as nutrition, that other evidence-based lifestyle factors and habits have been shown to be supportive of good brain health. And that's what I call whole body mental health. I don't think it makes sense to consider mental life as separate from the body. I'm trying to help people to think of themselves as an integrated organism that needs taking care of always. She says, broadly, being well rested and relaxed is helpful, but also you need to be able to combine unconsciously, usually, things that you know and are acquainted with new information. It is the synthesis of those two things that brings you to the, a new solution to a problem. And so you need to engage with your memory. The hippocampus is considered the seat of memory. It's about the consolidation and organization of memory in the brain. What's interesting about this relationship between nutrition and the hippocampus, it seems to be well established. We know that people who have an overall poorer dietary quality have smaller hippocampi. So this part of the brain that is so important for learning, memory and creativity seems to be impaired. Very interesting, very damning stuff on the diets and the processed food that is kind of, you know, 
advertised to us and promoted in fast food adverts and the rest of it. So beware. And if you're into that and want to learn more, Zuzana Kawowska is my guest on episode 204, talking about the importance of a healthy gut. Um, the microbiome, which is the healthy gut bacteria, of which we are said to have three kilograms in our large intestine, can influence our mood. So again, without the right fuel for it, would diminish our mental energy and our happiness and our creativity. Uh, as Susanna said, our health is so connected to our brain. We have this gut-brain axis and our gut and the bacteria living in it enormous, enormously influences our brain, our recognition and how we think. When you are sick, when you have depression and other brain-related problems, it is often connected to gut microbiome. If you're not taking care of your body, if you're inflamed, your brain will not function properly and you will not hit your full potential in creativity. So, um, you know, I, I found that by making personal changes off the back of this, I read Kimberly's book to begin with called Unprocessed, how our ultra-processed diets are... Now I've gone blank on the subtitle. Anyway, it's called Unprocessed. It's brilliant. It's about all this stuff. And um, I think it's so important i made the changes off the back of it and i can't tell you like how much better energy i have i rarely have to have naps now sometimes even when i've had bad nights with my young twins and my zest and my positivity and my ability to overcome the things that would otherwise send me on anxiety spirals have been so much improved just by looking at my lunch for example where i had a good breakfast porridge like full of nuts and seeds and oats and peanut butter and all this stuff and then lunchtime like my evening meal would be good too full of like veg and everything lunchtime i would have like i don't know egg on toast cheese on toast not particularly drastic by any means but i've started introducing two or three veg now just cooking a bit of cabbage or broccoli or spinach um and a few nuts and I, cutting out the crap like not always chocolate after lunch and stuff and i'll tell you what my energy has so much transformed because of it so you must look at your diet, don't care who you are. We are organisms and we have to fuel it right. Um, so those personal changes are, are really important. And uh, springboarding off that, we have number 19, which is get active. So again, that might seem paradoxical after point 17 about idling. <laughs> but as I said, idling is not necessarily laziness. It is fulfillment and downtime. And that can be act as active as you want. Um, Physical activity is something of a third essential in a thruple, as I like to call it, with rest or idling and good nutrition. So like most things, this is an individual consideration when it comes to how, what, where and when and why. Uh, sorry, but the why through the lens of creativity is easy to stimulate a positive outlook, a healthy human organism and more effective creativity. So get active. Even if you're in a bad place, start by walking a few more paces. Matt McArdle, a guest on uh, an episode, once again, let me find out which one that was. Um, Matt was my old teacher at school, and he's a, he's a physical, um, he's, a, he's a PT now, and a physiotherapist. Um, where are we? Oh, so got, I've gone black, but um, let's have a look, physical. And there we go, 176, episode 176, Matt McArdle from New Physio Fitness. Um, but he joined me on episode 176 and he talked about how, for example, have a glass of water on your desk if you work in an office job and every time it's empty, 
walk to the kitchen and fill it up. It's a starting point. And then build from there. Maybe you gradually start breaking a sweat. Maybe you walk home. You know, it's, there's so many ways you can weave this into your daily activity, I think, and really benefit from it. And I told him about having recently picked up a second-hand bike, which cost me 100 quid from uh, the local second-hand shop uh, in Salisbury. And the boost that my little adventures, like trips into town or just a little ride out somewhere have given me is, is amazing. Like, I'm so much sharper mentally. And he said about this, the benefit for you there working in the arts is that it will clear your head and you'll be better at what you do. If you can't look after yourself physically and mentally, then you can't do your job well. Time management has to come into it. The nature of having children means I have to do 12-hour days because on another day, I'm looking after them. Or I have to say to myself, right, today I'll stop, have a shower, some nice lunch, then get back onto it in the afternoon. I'll tell my clients to do that. I find that when I'm taking that time, I'm a better human, better parent, better husband, better for my clients. Doctors are not always trained in nutrition, which is mind-boggling to me. You know, it's like everything that Matt says there. He did mention, actually, um, that they are improving GPs in terms of recommending exercise and activities. But I really do wish that they'd bring nutrition into this because it's so critical to the point where it almost diminishes the rest of, of what they're doing if that's not there. Um, he said, like, a younger doctor that he knows will tell his patients that you need to get more active who comes into his gym and he'll tell his patients, go walking, go swim, get outside and do something and you'll feel better. And they invariably do. Um, you know, I don't think this is about hitting any great Olympic heights or anything like that or becoming a, a muscle freak, but it's about ensuring that we are aware of the needs of our body and our brain to achieve optimal creativity. Um, so that brings me to the end of part one. Uh, I could go on forever and I'm probably going to do in the second part, <laughs> which will be next week. But... This is part one of the uh, creativity checklist. Let me know your thoughts. I hope there's something useful in this rambling. It's very rough around the edges, very rudimentary. It's from the manuscript of the book. I put it together quite quickly. But I think if you just list all those 19 things and look at it from your own point of view and your own circumstances, I'm sure there's somewhere that you could improve. New Year's resolution style. That's what we do. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, guys. Thank you very much to the founding sponsor of the show, Illustration X. You can check out their global range of illustration and animation portfolios now, illustrationx.com. Please do leave me a little review on the platform that you're listening to this show. It's really, really helpful. Um, subscribe to the show, please, if you're a listener. That also helps with the listening figures. And tell a friend. You know, you might have had a message from me recently telling you about the podcast. Please do check it out. I do this largely for nothing and... It's my great passion, and I do think that in the 200-plus episodes I've been doing it, there's so much good value there from all my guests that will help you grow creatively. Thank you, guys. Have a great week. Chat to you very soon. <laughs>